New Testament Review, where we usually discuss classic works of New Testament scholarship. Today, we're going to be doing something different. So this is a recording of a discussion we had at Duke University this past spring of 2018 with Joel Marcus and Richard Hayes. It's probably not an exaggeration to say that Dr. Hayes and Dr. Marcus are some of the premier Bible scholars alive today, and they are both retiring this year. Um, this was their last semester teaching. Bruce McCuskey, an MDiv student at Duke Divinity, put together a discussion between the two, and this will be more confessional than our usual episodes because the conversation was taking place in a divinity school context. The main issue is Richard Hayes's inclination towards literary and theological approaches to the New Testament versus Joel Marcus's historical critical approach with an eye to towards the historical Jesus and the background, especially reading the Gospels, but also Paul. So we have edited it down and reproduced it here for you. So you can hear these two scholars discuss their preferred methods for evaluating the New Testament in doing New Testament research and just hear what they have to say in contrast and conversation with each other. Laura and I both think the world of these two scholars and we'll definitely be covering some of their classic works later on in the podcast. And we're going to miss them a lot here at Duke. <laughs> For sure. Please stop here leaving her behind Yeah, well Bruce said, you know, this wasn't about his autobiography but it is about mine. So, uh... <clears throat> I want to talk about me a little bit. Um, I uh, didn't grow up in a Christian family, but a secular Jewish family. Uh, and the way I became a Christian is too long a story to tell now, but suffice it to say it had to do with sex, drugs, and literature. Um, and when I did so in my early 20s, I kind of gradually gravitated towards fairly conservative Christian circles. Uh, and eventually, after seven years as a dropout, and my dropping out had to do with the sex, drugs, and literature, uh, well, more with the sex and drugs than with the literature. Um, <laughs> after several years as a dropout, I decided to go back. I'd become a Christian in the meantime, and I wanted to study Hebrew and Greek, and ancient Jewish and Christian history with a view to becoming a New Testament scholar. Uh, but I was uh, still you know, very conservative in those days, and to illustrate, I uh, had a professor who was an Orthodox Jew who gave a, a good survey course on the history of Jewish literature you know, from the Bible to the present day, and he did uh, include uh, a lecture about uh, the New Testament and early Christianity in there, and I remember him saying, you know those red-letter editions of the Bible where they have the words of Jesus in red and everything else is in black print? Uh, and of course I knew that edition. I had you know one or two of those. And he said, well, one thing I'm sure of is that Jesus didn't say all those words that are in red letters. Uh, and I remember thinking at the time, you're going to regret that statement someday <laughs> very much. And, uh, but if that's right, then I probably will regret it very much someday too, uh, because I no longer believe that everything in the red letter editions of the New Testament was actually said by Jesus. In other words, my thinking about the relation between the New Testament and historicity has undergone an evolution, a word that I don't consider a dirty word. Uh, and I wanted to just talk a little bit about um, how that's happened. Uh, when I first began reading around in biblical criticism, after or while I was becoming a Christian, I felt terribly frightened, and I imagine you know, many of us here can identify with these feelings. I was frightened by, by what I perceived to be atheistic ways of approaching the biblical text, approaches that questioned the historicity of various aspects of the biblical accounts, approaches that found multiple sources, sometimes contradictory sources in the biblical accounts, approaches that viewed the Gospels and the Old Testament narratives as expressing the theology of the writer 
uh, as much as or more than uh, the uh, what the theology of say Jesus or the people uh, who were supposed to be being presented. Uh, so I was really I felt really threatened by that, and one of the things that began to change my mind was when I got to graduate school and I saw that my two main teachers, Lou Martin and Ray Brown, uh, I mean, they seemed to be Christians to me, but here they were with, you know, in various ways, embracing critical approaches to the text. So that was kind of the beginning of an epistemological uh, sort of change. Um, But they did in various ways, approach critical, uh, have critical approaches to the text. Like, for example, I remember in a uh, class on the Gospel of Mark with Lou Martin, uh, him talking about uh, Bultmann's interpretation of Mark 8.38. Whoever is ashamed, where Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes with his uh, holy angels. And Bultmann argued that from you know the phrasing of that, whoever is ashamed of me, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed. Prima facie, that seems to suggest that Jesus did not think that he was the Son of Man. They seem to be, according to his interpretation, two distinct figures in that saying, even though these two figures, Jesus himself and the Son of Man on the other hand, are in an inextricably close relationship. But still, uh, according to Bultmann's interpretation, you know, Jesus seems to think of the Son of Man as another figure from himself. And I remember being kind of uh, weirded out by this and saying, well, could Jesus still be the Son of Man even if he didn't know he was the Son of Man? And Lou more or less saying, yes. Uh, And that kind of reminds me of another uh, colleague of ours who shall remain nameless because uh, she wants to remain nameless, Uh, but she teaches at a seminary that is even more conservative than this one, and she says that she has often wanted to say to her students uh, that Jesus didn't think he was God, but he was wrong about that. So, um, you know, who Jesus thought he was may be a different question from who the church thinks he was and who it has been revealed through the Holy Spirit that he was and is. So, I now view the Gospels as a complex mixture of history and theology of memory and later reflection. And sometimes it's very difficult to disentangle what is the historical memory and what is the later reflection when you're dealing with works like the Gospels. And it seems to me that it's just, in many ways, like, say, one's own memories of one's childhood, of one's brothers and sisters and one's parents. You know, there were events behind those memories that I have of them, but those memories, as I think about them now, they have been transfigured by everything that has subsequently happened between me and my parents while we were while they were still alive, and you know my brothers and sisters, and everything else that I've lived through. All of that affects the way I remember my childhood, and that is just inevitable. Um, so that the church, uh, in canonizing the Gospels, the church has canonized the Gospels and not the historical Jesus. Uh, so that that says, I think, that you know what is of first important is the story that has been transmitted by the church, which the church believes has been inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit. And I think that story has some relationship to 
you know, what happened to Jesus in A.D. 30, but the stories have been redacted and retold and transfigured in the light of later Christian insight. So uh, I think maybe uh, something that Emily Dickinson said is apropos, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. That's, we don't have the bare truth, we have the truth retold in a slanted way, but that may be the way in which success in a spiritual sense lies. What gives me more pause is the passages in Scripture that make me wonder whether the Holy Spirit was really totally behind all aspects of this process. And for me, this is particularly focused on uh, my struggles, really, with you know, some of the things that are said, say, especially in the Gospel of John, about, quote, the Jews, a term which becomes in the Gospel of John uh, more or less a technical term for the enemies of Jesus. And obviously this has been a big concern of mine because of my own Jewish background, albeit a secular Jewish background, and I've spent many thousands of dollars discussing the ramifications of this with various therapists over the years. <laughs> but I think that because of this background, I sometimes lean a little bit more towards a hermeneutic of suspicion than Richard does. So, for example, while I love the Gospel of John, in many ways I'm also really disturbed by these statements about the Jews or when Jesus says to the Jews, you are of your father, the devil. I think if I'd been sitting at John's side while he was writing that gospel, I might have gently suggested that he should tone it down a little bit and not put words like, you are of your father, the devil, in Jesus' mouth. But this sort of problem is also one of the things that drives me to embrace historical criticism. Because at least the, one of the ways that I deal with these statements is to see them as coming out of a certain very heated, polemical, historical context, which is probably not Jesus' context in A.D. 30, but the context of John and his community towards the end of the century, after Christians and Jews had begun to drift apart and squabble with each other about who was the true Israel. And this polemical, uh, very hot situation at the end of the century may have even included persecution of some Christian Jews by other Jews. So that situation was a particular situation, and it's no longer our situation. And it's important to recognize that for most of the past 2,000 years, the situation has been completely reversed with Christians uh, persecuting Jews. So that you can't just take these statements that come out of a particular polemical situation and embrace them, I think, as timeless truth. One can ask, you know, is there still some timeless truth for us in such pointed statements? And... You know, it may be that situations arise where one perceives that, you know, one is, the hostility one is experiencing is, you know, not just, there's some other added dimension than just people disagree. Um, but uh, I think, you know, that sort of thing makes it a kind of complex undertaking to interpret uh statements in the Bible that come out of polemical situations. And so therefore, in this and other analogous situations, and one could think about some of Paul's comments about women or the general biblical attitude towards slavery, seems to me that historical criticism is absolutely necessary if we are not to fall into the trap of a mindless and mechanical and heartless biblicism. 
Okay, you can share now. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Joel. Uh, the, the first thing I want to say is to agree with um, what Bruce indicated in his opening remarks, that I think that the perception that Joel and I would represent incompatible or opposed approaches to biblical criticism would be a deeply misleading one. Um, I, I have huge appreciation for the kind of scholarship that Joel does. Uh, when I was starting in to write on the Gospel of Mark for my most recent book, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, the first place I went was to Joel's commentary in the Anchor Bible on the Gospel of Mark. And if you look at, at, at this uh, book and see what I wrote about Mark, you'll see that the footnotes are full of references to that commentary and to things I learned from Joel's historical scholarship on Mark's Gospel. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, I just want to say that I appreciate that. And, and to note, by the way, that it's striking to me that this panel is being held one week to the day before the final classes that each of us will teach. I don't, do you teach a Friday class? No, so what my final class that I'll teach, but both of us are retiring. And so this is, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting that we're having this conversation now, but we've been having a conversation what, what, when did you come to Duke? 2002, is that right? One, 2001. 2001. Yeah. So for the past 17 years, it's been my privilege to be in conversation with But Joel. also when we were both like assistant or That's associates right. at uh, Yale and Princeton, respectively. Yeah, and there was That's a thing called the Columbia Seminar yeah. in New York where uh, people would come together in New York City uh, under the auspices, really, of Union Seminary. And yeah, so that goes back... Gosh. So when we were both young yeah, men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have, uh, during these years, also played guitar together and, and uh, performed in various venues around here. He's a better guitar player Leonard than Cohen. I am. Yeah. And he's a better singer than I am, so there we go. Um, True. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just want to make all of that clear in the beginning, that I think that while it is true that the two of us represent uh, slightly differing methodological tacks in the way we've approached our scholarship. I see those, those approaches as complementary and, and not competitive. Um, and one of the reasons that I think they're complementary is, as, as Joel mentioned, his uh, being drawn into the field in a period where sex, drugs, and literature were important. The, the key point of contact there, in addition to the sex and drugs, is, is the literature. Because Joe, I was an English major as an undergraduate, and that's had a big impact on how I read the, uh, the Bible. And Joel is a very astute reader of literature as well, and it has formed uh, his approach as well. And so some of the, the ways we come at texts uh, are convergent for that reason. Uh, I, I will leave the sex and drugs out of it for the moment. Um, uh, I'm not going to speak autobiographically, but I, I suppose uh, those, those... He same, could tell you some things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least sex had something to do with my getting into being a Christian as well. So, But we'll, I won't go there today. Um, the uh, so here's here's what I think, and I haven't written out remarks except for just a, scrawling a few notes. But the thing I would say about how theology and historical criticism are related to one another is that for Christian scholarship they go hand in hand, and there's a theological reason for that, which is the belief that God has acted in history, that God has chosen a particular historical people, Israel, and that God has become definitively manifest in the incarnation in human history. And so therefore, as precisely as theologians in the Christian tradition, we have to take history very seriously. And we can't blow it off. And I also believe very strongly that that, that history that we do 
cannot be sort of overdetermined by apologetic interests, that we have to be honest about what we are able to determine to the best of our ability about uh, what happened in the past and how that might have shaped the writing of Scripture. So I uh, appreciate very much some of the kinds of concerns that Joel has named. I also find the passages about uh, Jews in the Gospel of John to be prima facie disturbing and troubling for reasons uh, theological as, as well as uh, simply human. And uh, I, I, I generally agree broadly with the view that what we have in the Gospels, as I've been, those of you, some of you are in my New Testament intro, I've been talking all semester about the ways in which the Gospels should be read as words of testimony. They are narrative presentations that seek to provide portraits of Jesus and the emergence of the uh, early movement of his followers. And they do so in a way that in, intended to, to bear witness to certain kinds of theological claims. And they are not, they're, they're not simply uh, documentary films that are, are simply showing literal footage through, so you're looking through a window on what actually happened necessarily. They're, they're, they're colored and shaped theologically for various reasons. If I could give a very, just a very small example of that, not related to the, the problem of the Jews in the Gospel of John, but if you look at the crucifixion narratives in the Gospel of Mark and the, and the Gospel of Luke and set them side by side with one another, Mark has Jesus dying, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke has Jesus dying, saying, Into your hands I commend my spirit. You, if you ask, as a historian, what did Jesus really say as he was dying on the cross? How can we possibly answer such a question? I don't think there's any way of providing any kind of historically confident answer to a question like that. What we can say is the way in which both Mark and Luke represent Jesus as dying, quoting a psalm. And it's Psalm 22 in the case of Mark, Psalm 31 in the case of Luke. And the, the selections from those psalms are part and parcel of each evangelist's larger attempt to characterize the identity of Jesus and the significance of his death. And those two should be... We don't, we don't decide, at least I don't decide, oh, well, one is right and the other is wrong. I say the two of them are each bearing witness to something significant that ought to inform how I understand Jesus' significance. Now, when you get to something like the, the Jews uh, saying that uh, uh, your father is the de uh, to Jesus saying to the Jews, your father is the devil, then we're into a different kind of a problem. And I tend to think that, and, and I think this is a place where you and I agree, that that is very unlikely to be something that the Jesus of history actually said. And that it does represent the Johannine community's later attempt to come to grips with a conflict that was occurring in their community. So. You and I don't disagree about that sort of thing at all. Uh, the, the question, though, is then what we do with that, theologically speaking. And is there some way in which, do, do we simply exercise the kind of hermeneutic of suspicion that says, well, I just reject that part of the canon? Or do we say, is there some way in which we can rethink that historically in a way that is productive for Christian theology. Uh, Chris Blumhofer, who's just finished his dissertation here, has written a very interesting study of this in which he describes the Gospel of John as being engaged in a struggle for interpreting uh, the future of Israel and, and seeing John as representing a rival view of that to emergent uh, rabbinic Judaism. And uh, broadly speaking, I think that that would be consonant with the way uh, that Dr. Marcus would see it. Uh, but, you know, Chris tries to work with that theologically and to say, how do we incorporate that 
into a, a view that can, can be informative for Christian theology, chiefly for one thing, insisting that whatever we say about the significance of Jesus, it has to be understood as continuous with the history of Israel and the story of Israel, not over against it. And so there, there are ways of, of engaging that, and it's a very complicated question, more than, more than I can deal with here. But it, I will say that when I first in, started reading historical criticism in seminary and encountering it, I was threatened by it too. I was threatened by it not because I thought it was atheistic. Uh, I, I should say, by the way, I came out of a liberal Protestant background, suburban, white-bred Methodist liberalism. Uh, and thought it was completely barren and rejected it by the time I was 16 years old, didn't want anything to do with it, and uh, really got drawn back into the church uh, when I was an undergraduate at Yale, chiefly by the witness of William Sloan Coffin, who was such a powerful voice speaking against the Vietnam War and, and in favor of the Civil Rights Movement. And I thought, oh my goodness, I didn't realize Christians could think like that and, and speak like that about these real issues in, in people's lives. So I began reading this stuff, and the, and the reason I found the historical criticism threatening or puzzling is I just thought, why in the hell are these people trying to read these texts like this? Why are they speculating about hypothetical earlier layers of tradition for which we don't have any actual textual evidence why aren't they talking about how the narrative works as a whole, how the, how the imagery and thought of the narrative hangs together, how it, how it subtly and interestingly reinforces the, the message of the text? So I, I really came at it as a literary critic and saying, why, why can't we uh, engage these texts, qua texts, in a way that respects their in, integrity? I've come to realize over time that you can't just do that in a way, though, that is heedless of historical context. Uh, you, can't, you can't read, um, if, if you're reading a novel, let's say, that's set in the middle of the 19th century in, in the United States, you can't do that without knowing something about the history of the Civil War and the history of why there, were, uh, why there was a, a separation. Uh, but, but, and a war between the states. If you don't know something about that, you can't understand the novel you're reading. And something like that is important, I think, in reading the, the biblical text. We have to understand what Umberto Eco called both the encyclopedia of production, that is to say the, the whole symbolic world that the author brings to the text, as well as the encyclopedia of reception, the symbolic world that the original readers of the text would have brought to understanding it. Uh, and something like that is what I've tried to address in a book like Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, so that I'm deeply concerned uh, about questions of historical context, because if we don't do that, what we end up doing instead is simply anachronistically retrojecting our own cultural assumptions onto texts that were produced in a very different world. Uh, if I could just give one tiny example of what I'm talking about. Uh, you read in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23, the question where John the Baptist sends disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the coming one, or should we expect another? As I, as I kind of read my way into that text and tried to understand it, I realized that this question, are you ho'erchomenos, are you the coming one, is echoing Psalm 118, where it says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then if you learn, as I did, that Psalm 118 is the conclusion of a cycle of Hallel Psalms that are sung repeatedly by the Jewish people on the occasion of the great festivals, Passover and Tabernacles, that informs what that question means. And Jesus' answer to it about, look, you see all these people being healed, the, the blind being given sight and so on. You understand that answer only if you understand it against the background of Isaiah 35, which is talking about the end of Israel's exile and the, the coming back uh, uh, 
to the land and the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel and the liberation that that entails. So the text, when you start reading it in light of those pieces of historical and contextual knowledge, just opens up in a bigger way than you could understand apart from that. So that's, that's a tiny example uh, that we, we can... Understanding the, the historical context of these texts helps us to avoid retrojection of our own shallow culture onto the text. And when I say shallow culture, I, I mean also ecclesial culture. Uh, that we can, we can do that constantly. But I think that our historical hypotheses about the text always need to be tempered by what I like to call the criterion of humility, of realizing how limited our actual knowledge is of the ancient world and of the specific historical circumstances that surrounded the traditions that go into the assembly of these texts. We can, we can make hypotheses about them, and I think this is one of the areas where perhaps there's a little difference between us. I think that some of Joel's work on the Gospel of Mark, for example, attempts at least to reconstruct rather precisely the date and setting of Mark in relation to the Jewish war of 66 to 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, I find that really interesting as a possibility for interpretation, but I don't, I, I can't quite be as confident as I think you are that we can know precisely those things uh, as to whether Mark was written in, in Rome or in Syria, Palestine, or whatever. I, I'm just, I th I'm agnostic about that. And so I, I tend to sit looser to those sorts of hypotheses or about the question of whether there was a Q document that was used by both Matthew and Luke. Um, I think that's a, a possible hypothesis, but there are other explanatory hypotheses that work just as well, in my view. So that's, if there are differences, it may be at, at that kind of a level. But I think both of us have a commitment to read these texts, and focusing for the moment on the Gospels, to read these texts as bearing witness to the truth about who God is and how God has acted in and through Christ's death and resurrection for the redemption of the world. Uh, if that's warmed over Christian spirituality, uh, then uh, I'll, I'll take it. So I'll end there. Before we open it up for questions from the floor, it's only fair to allow them to put a question to each other or a response to each other's presentations. Um, yeah, let, let me take up just uh, a couple of things. Um, the, and maybe these are just points of detail, but uh, yeah, I liked, well, first of all, let me say, you know, I, I agree with you that um, just in terms of our compatibility and complementarity of approach and I'm grateful you know that you've had that perception down through the years and you know that's a large part of the reason why uh, I ended up getting a job here so um, thanks <laughs> <laughs> however uh, I may have chaired the committee the search committee I'm not I can't remember now uh, I think Rick Lisher. Rick chaired it. I was on the search committee. You were the power behind the throne. <laughs> <laughs> the fix was in. Um, uh, just you know, a couple of maybe you know picky things about the uh, the words from the cross in Mark and Luke. I guess you know what I would say is I think probably the cry of dereliction, which you have in Mark and picked up in. Matthew, that's probably historical. Uh, it's, um, I don't think it's the sort of, you know, so this is where the criterion of discontinuity or embarrassment comes in. I don't think it's the sort of thing that the church would have made up if Jesus hadn't had said it. Uh, whereas Luke changing, so Luke maybe recognizes that Jesus, you know, this tradition that's there of Jesus saying this thing comes from a psalm, but he's changed it to a more palatable psalm, you know, which doesn't portray Jesus as in the throes of despair. So I think that's a really good illustration of historical approach. 
I, but I agree with you, you know, they're both important things for the Christian tradition. And they were probably both felt to be somehow, in some strange way, especially with regard to the Mark one, empowering to the church. And, and I find it powerful, you know, that uh, Jesus experienced that sort of despair. Um, and yet that didn't mean that God had abandoned him, though it sure as hell felt like it. Uh, so um, I think that's an illustration of you know some of the things that uh, can we absolutely be sure of that? Well, hell no, you know we don't have uh, we don't have cameras, but in terms of historical probability, I think that's more probable than not. But I think the the more important questions are uh, the hermeneutical ones, uh, and. I appreciate what you say about, you know, ways of rereading John that are, you know, where John, you know, doesn't come out as being as anti-Jewish as in, you know, other readings. I guess I'm just not convinced that that is a true picture of what John was trying to get across. You know, so I'm always very afraid of reading our own uh, more refined theologies into these texts. You know, I want to try to figure out what the text says and then grapple with it hermeneutically. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with sometimes saying we we can't talk like this anymore, or we sh- you know we shouldn't even think like this anymore. Uh, and you know, so I think. You know, some of the Old Testament passages kind of uh, portray genocide as okay. I don't think it's okay. Uh, And maybe my views of that have been informed by other, you know, biblical passages and by the tradition of the church. But I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, no, I don't agree. I'm trying to understand where the author is coming from. But, you know, we've also maybe learned something in 2,000 years. And uh, for me, that sort of reasoning applies to kind of things that are said about various forms of gender roles and sexuality in the Old and New Testament as well. I think it's okay to say, this is where Paul was coming from, but I don't agree. But I think the first task is to try to figure out where what Paul is saying, you know, and uh, to try to do that in a clear-eyed way and not to um, impose our own agendas on, on him. Um, the other thing I wanted to I mention is about uh, this Luke passage about the question of John the Baptist and Jesus' answer. I, you know, I think... Yeah, the um, that's a very astute observation about the coming one and um, the Old Testament echoes there and what it um, may say about, I think, what it may say about Jesus' self-consciousness. But, you know, having just finished a book on John the Baptist, you know, I couldn't help, you know, think of it from the perspective of John the Baptist, who um, I argue in this book, uh, probably saw himself as, you know, first of all, you know, the proclaimer of the kingdom of God, uh, saw his sacrament, the baptism, as ushering people into the kingdom of God, and saw himself really as the main man. You know, he thought that some other would come, whether that's God or the Messiah. I think is a debatable point. I think maybe it's the Messiah. But did he think Jesus was the Messiah? You know, if you read the, uh, the later baptismal narratives, you know, he already realized at the baptism that Jesus was the Son of God and the coming one. But the very passage that, you know, you referred to shows him near the end of his life just kind of starting to entertain the possibility that Jesus might be the Messiah and significantly, the story doesn't record him as being convinced by Jesus' answer. You know, I think that's a significant omission. So again, that's the sort of 
discrepancy with the way that a figure has been portrayed in Christian tradition uh, that I think is significant and worthy of historical thought, but also hermeneutical thought. You know, could John uh, have been subordinate to Jesus even though he didn't see himself as subordinate to Jesus? So for me, it's kind of similar to my question to Lou Martin. Could Jesus have been uh, the Son of Man even if he didn't know that he was the Son of Man? Could he have been God uh, even though he was wrong in thinking that he wasn't God? Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, I think, I think basically we're playing in the same ballpark, you know, but we have different strategies uh, and uh, maybe different game plans for this complex thing called New Testament criticism. Those, those examples, Joel, are, are interesting because, I mean, if I had to uh, propose a, a historical reconstruction about the crucifixion, I would agree with you that I think that if you've got to choose uh, that Mark's use of Psalm 22 in all likelihood probably goes back to a real cry of Jesus from the cross and that his his cry of that psalm is not he's not just saying words that happen to correspond with Psalm 22 but that Jesus as a devout and faithful Jew has Psalm 22 in his bones already and those are the words he might find in that uh, moment of agony uh, and and that Luke for the reasons you indicated uh, finds that not consistent with the picture he wants to portray of Jesus uh, in his crucifixion. Um, it's all, Luke also has uh, the uh, Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, saying that isn't there in, in Mark. And so there's a whole different representation of Jesus in the crucifixion. It's also true, however, that the Psalm 31 that Luke does quote, into your hand I commit my spirit, is a psalm that is likewise a psalm of suffering and cry for redemption. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Uh, incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. And, and it goes on to say things like, I'm the scorn of all my adversaries, a horror to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. I've passed out of mind like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel, and and so on. So th this, you know, the the wider context of the psalm there. I think if we recover that, now you know, did Luke intend us to hear all those resonances? Um, I'm not sure, but why did Luke select that as the psalm to? use in the narrative. I think it's because it's another of these mm -hmm. uh, psalms of lament and suffering which he takes to have in it a line that he thinks is appropriate to express his understanding of Jesus willingly accepting what was happening on the cross. So I, I, I don't think we really disagree there uh, at all. It's just that I'm, I, I think maybe you're more confident that, that that really is for sure what Jesus said than I would be, actually, at that point. Uh, you're uh, more of a fundamentalist than I am. I, I, <laughs> I just... I, Them's fighting words. <laughs> again, I say, I don't know. I mean, you know, Mark has his own theological reasons. Yeah, of course, that. yeah. Yeah, as, as you well know, yeah. better than I. Um, on, on the, the uh, I actually deliberately chose to say something about a John the Baptist passage because yeah. I knew you'd written about John and I mm -hmm. thought it might provoke something. Narratively, John has made a pronouncement about Jesus as the chosen one. John certainly doesn't think he himself is the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Narratively, he does believe that Jesus is the one at this point, he's in prison, 
and nothing is happening, and Jesus is mm-hmm. walking around and isn't yet proclaiming himself king mm-hmm. and, and uh, reestablishing the kingdom, and perhaps in the way John might have expected. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we expect another, indicates that it's just now for the first time occurring to John that, that Jesus might be the Messiah. It's that he thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah, and Jesus isn't acting like the Messiah that he expected. I mean, if you view it in the context of those two Gospels, in which, you know, in Matthew and Luke, where the story occurs, I can agree with you. I'm just saying, historically, uh, I I question that. And it seems to me that, you know, this uh, passage in Luke 7 and Matthew 11 uh, is, you know, this is a fragment of a tradition that reveals to us what, you know, we can also get from, from other thoughts that John was not as convinced of who Jesus was as he has been portrayed in the subsequent tradition. Because there's a theological interest in downgrading him vis-a-vis Jesus, which is, you know, most obvious and blatant in the Gospel of John. He was not the light. Why do you say that? Because people were thinking that John was the light. Um, so, um, yeah, I agree with you if you're approaching this on in terms of the narrative of Matthew and Luke, but my book is about, you know, what we can with some probability say about the historical John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. So that's why this is a really good example, because... We don't know that John ever asked any such question mm-hmm. apart from the fact that the question appears in the narratives of Mark and Matthew right. where it functions in the way I just described. Mm-hmm. So you, you have hypothesized yeah. that John actually asked such a question and that Matthew and Luke somehow knew that he had sent disciples to ask such a question, yeah. uh, but that they have reinterpreted the meaning of that question in, in light of their narrative. Yeah, also I just don't know how you know all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, read my book, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, to... So, you know, your interpretation is sort of like John went through this dark night of the soul. Well, uh, I mean, okay. so, you know, you, have to, you can only get there by this sort of psychologizing, you know, that reads into the narrative stuff that isn't there in the narrative and does so in order to deal precisely with the historical problem that I've been posing. But how so, is that different from your psychologizing of the dark night of the soul Jesus was going through when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken Because me? that's there in the text. The dark night of the soul isn't there in, in this particular passage in Luke and, and Matthew. So you're, you're getting it because you're putting the two, you know, you're looking at it in the overall sweep of these Gospels. But I'm saying that, you know, in terms of the, the Mark passage in particular, my God, why have you forsaken me? That seems to be a dark night of the soul. Whereas saying, are you the one who is to come? That doesn't in itself indicate a dark night of the soul. So, so you think that the question is not necessarily asked when John is in prison. Is that right? Well, no, I think the being asked in a when, when he's in prison that's a plausible setting yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, you know why well, should that why should that lead him to if he really did from you know the time that Jesus was baptized I mean first of all in the our earliest gospel Mark he doesn't observe <coughs> anything happening you know it's all what Jesus sees yeah, yeah, exactly. at his baptism exactly So the later Gospels have, you know, redacted that so that it's not just Jesus' private vision, uh, but John also sees, and in Matthew everybody sees. So there's a theological interest that they are serving by broadening it out so that it's not just some crazy guy's idea, you know, that the Spirit came down on him, but it was an observable event. Mm -hmm. So that seems to me to be a... uh, consonant with the way the church more and more read its own theology into the events. Whereas, I, again, it seems to me that Mark's uh, portrayal 
where you know there isn't any public vision, there isn't any public event, is more likely to be closer to what what happened. So. Well, that's, I just think it's an interesting example that illustrates some of the ways we approach yeah. methodologically right. differently how to read these texts yeah. and how to think about well, and I, the relationship yeah, I think, to history. Yeah, I think what you said about me being more fundamentalist, that, that may be true. You know, I'm not, because, you know, I don't like the sort of approach that says, well, we can never know, you know, anything about what actually happened. And, you know, so Mark may be as plausible as John and whatever, you know, I think that's just throwing your, you know, throwing in the towel, and I don't want to do that. You know, I, some things seem to me to be more probable than others, and that's what a historian, you know, has to go with. We can never get absolute certainty, and sometimes we don't even get fifty percent certainty. But sometimes it seems to me maybe we get fifty-one percent. You know, so. <laughs> uh, the, you, you know, the, if I could just give one other quick example. Uh, in the case of John, uh, those of you who've heard my New Testament lectures will know that, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying this again to indicate that I agree with you about trying to get, uh, you know, not just treating all of the thing as undifferentiated, pure narrative and being uninterested in history. I think that the material in the farewell discourses in the Gospel of John uh, is uh, those speeches of Jesus are deeply influenced by the language of early Christian prophecy, and and that it's you know, this is not a transcription of, of what Jesus said on his last night before he was arrested. It, it represents uh, the early church's reading back of prophetic discourse on onto the figure of Jesus in John's narrative, and so I wouldn't. I just give that as an example of ways in which I think we can assign greater and lesser degrees of historical probability. I think it's much more likely that the synoptic parables of Jesus preserve authentic traditions of what Jesus actually said than do the farewell discourses in the Gospel of John. So, just Glad you've come around, yeah. Glad, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Mitch and Luke and all the guys from Carnegie for letting us use their song in the intro and outro music of the podcast. You should check them out. Please leave us a review, either commensurate with the quality of your listening experience or exercising the sort of grace of which you hope to be the recipient. You can write to us at NewTestamentReview at gmail.com or find us at Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, Review.